Welcome to the My Personal Football Coach Youth Soccer Player Development Podcast, episode 22 with Tony Carr. Welcome to MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Soccer Player Development Podcast. Discover all the secrets, hints and tips about soccer player development and soccer coaching from some of the leading figures in world soccer. Here's your host, Saul Isaacson-Hurst. Hi guys, welcome back to another show. Uh, this this week we've got uh, a living legend uh, as a guest this week. I was uh, privileged to spend an hour or so in the company of Tony Carr, who's the ex-academy manager of West Ham United's famous uh, academy. Um, players that came through his academy while he was there include uh, people like Frank Lampard, Rio Ferdinand, Joe Cole, Michael Carrick, Jermaine Defoe. Uh, Tony Cotty to name just a few so real real uh, had such a massive impact on the footballing landscape uh, for West Ham but also obviously for England as well um, helping bring through such a massive quality of generation of players so um, was really privileged that he agreed to come on the show and uh, he had so much knowledge and uh, wisdom to share and uh, so I'm sure you're going to enjoy this is one of the one of the obviously uh, one of the pinnacles for me uh, interviewing someone like Tony. So uh, really, uh, real pleasure to, to spend some time with him. So I know you're going to enjoy it. Uh, things are rolling over at my personal football coach. Uh, the apps, feedback from the app is going from strength to strength. Really appreciate all the feedback we're getting from um, users all around the world. Remember the Dynamic Ball Mastery Program, the world's leading online individual technical homework program uh, being used by players all over the world, pro clubs, amateur clubs, individuals. So uh, if you're interested in in doing a bit extra if you're a player or a parent, you want your player, you want your your child to improve uh, not only technically but also uh, improve their physicality as well and their dynamic movement. Uh, just go to my personal football coach and get the dynamic ball mastery program and download the app from the Apple and Google Store. So really, really pleased and uh, privileged. Uh, everybody's been giving such great feedback. Real honoured. Uh, so uh, I'm really looking forward to the next few months got lots of things coming up including a trip to Thailand and then to Canada so busy busy but without further ado let's get into the show so Tony Carr welcome to the show uh, yeah. can you just give us a little bit of background about your uh, experience within the game just a, just a brief just a brief uh, just a brief yeah, run well, through um, you obviously played football at school for East London boys I was an East London lad and um Signed for West Ham United in 1966 as an apprentice professional. Uh, signed as a pro a couple of years later. Never quite made the grade, but sort of took an interest in coaching while I was playing and was working in schools and got my uh, initial qualification while I was at West Ham, the, the preliminary award, the FA preliminary award. Uh, and then I took that into... Um, when I left West Ham United and went part-time playing for Barnet, I then got a, a, a job coaching in schools in North London, whereas where my coaching was honed and got made me get well organised. And, and um, I got a bad injury uh, and I got a phone call just completely out of the blue from John Lyle in 1973 uh, to become a part-time coach at West Ham with their juniors and I, I accepted that role. Um, I sort of had, I basically had to give up the playing career to do it, but it set me in good stead because I, I was there for 43 years up until 2016. And so, um, you know, a long, illustrious career at West Ham United and thoroughly enjoyed it. 
Tell us a little bit about how, that, how, you're, how did you progress through the ranks from that first provisional job yeah, to being well, an academy manager? Yeah, the, the first, my first role was just Tuesday and Thursday evenings and then help run the teams on a weekend, uh, bearing in mind that it, it wasn't as extensive then as it is now in academies. Uh, you weren't allowed to play schoolboy teams for professional clubs in them days. Um, and then at, for seven years I, I was doing that and then uh, in 1980 I got asked to come full-time uh, by John and uh, just after West Ham had won the FA Cup and um, I then was running the youth team, I was in charge of the under-18s, taking over from Ron Boyce and um, as, the, as the youth programmes in all clubs developed through first and foremost through uh, centres of excellence where you could extend coaching hours and, and, and have younger age groups and uh, because I'd been there the longest in effect and had the most experience I was asked to become the Centre of Excellence Director which then led into Howard Wilkinson's Charter for Quality and then that led into the EPP with academies and I progressed becoming the Centre of Excellence Manager, the Academy Manager and then obviously the um, Academy Director through the EPP programme. Tell us a little bit about that journey obviously now modern day game academy mm. game everyone talks about it you know players yeah. are coming in at seven and eight years old yeah got under nine teams what was the what was the, the progression like in terms of being you know obviously one of the bigger clubs having an academy what ages did you start and how, when did that, yeah, how did that I, filter I, I down i think to? when we when i first started years ago we, we we only took boys on from 14 onwards 13 14 under the old system of uh, associate schoolboy forms where you can only sign a boy at 14 years of age and then that boy is then committed up until that point the best players were travelling around all different clubs, trialling, training, and sort of seeing which club that, you know, they favoured. Um, and then that progressed that you could do the sentence of actions, you could start to run teams from a much younger. Then that progressed to the academies where you could, you could take them under, under, under eights, under nine teams. Um, and I think it was a little bit of shooting in the dark, to be honest, in terms of recruitment, in terms of. You know, what do you coach an eight-year-old? It's, it's, it's difficult. Um, um, I, I certainly learned that the, be the best way for me, or for us, was that, um, you know, not basically to overcoach. Don't tell them what to do. Let, that ga let the games, let the, let the practice be the teacher of the technical skills or tactical uh, aspect you were trying to get across. Now, whether it be pushing up from the back, whether it be holding width, or whether it be hitting a target player early, or whatever it was, as basic as it might have been, is not to sort of stop it at every moment, uh, moment and uh, correct and constantly correct. Let the players learn. Let the players experiment what what works for them, etc. But uh, certainly, my mantra was not to overcoach, and I was very conscious of that, especially these sort of very young ones when you really you're the very very the very very talented boys that are showing a real aptitude are going into football clubs now at six and seven years of age and whether that translate you know in 10 years time that they'll be you know still the best players at 17 18 is, is debatable to be honest and uh, what do you coach an eight-year-old will you coach a seven-year-old or, or do you coach them you know do you sort of put them in an environment where they're playing with uh, the best players that you can recruit so in other words the best players are playing with the best players and, and I think questions will be asked of them if you just if you just played small-sided games you know the opposition uh, their opponent 
if you like, even though they're with the same club, uh, would be asking different questions of them. And, and I think it's for them to work that out. You may point them in a different direction. You may put a theme on a practice, whether it was tight, whether it was small, whether it was long, whether it was narrow, or you know, an aspect of the game you're trying to promote. But certainly I think you know, let that practice, let that game be the teacher rather than the coach constantly inter intervening. And I'm, I'm a big believer in that at a very young age. And I think there is a debate whether clubs should be taking them at that young age and certainly signing them at that age and then, then releasing them at 11. Now, what message does that send to a young kid, a young impressionable kid? You know, you've been at a football club for a year, professional club for a year, and they release you. Does that say you're not good enough? Well, of course it doesn't, but, um, you know, it's, you're, you're sending really uh, mixed messages to young kids about know where they are in the game and uh, so what do you think would be the ideal scenario for that take away academy's ability to sign players at under nines under yeah tens? I, I think you we you shouldn't be taking them to, i would say of 12 years of age would be an ideal age group yeah about 12 um the problem is it's never going to happen because um if that was your policy at your club i mean by the time you got around to recruiting at 12 i mean the best players be gone yeah. Because other clubs were not going to not going to follow that line, so, so it's a difficult. You, so you, you, is that from a purely because uh, a welfare thing? You're concerned about the problems with releasing players, or yeah, is it also think, about the coaching. I think it's a bit, I think it's a bit of both. I think young co players these days are overcoached. Yeah, um, I think there is a welfare issue. Yeah, and I think there's a psychological issue as well in terms of turning these kids off the game, um, and and and. and it, in, in other words, they'll fall out of love with the game. And I'll, I'll, I'd be very concerned about that. What you can do about it, you know, there's a big debate to be had about that. You know, and I'm perhaps not in a position to dictate that, but I'd certainly like to be in a discussion, with, you know, if we were discussing those issues, you know, just through my experiences working with young players. Um, and certainly um, the biggest problem is, is with clubs is, is fear, you know, You've got an under nine team, so you start recruiting at under eights, which is obvious because they're the next intake. But now you're recruiting at under sevens and you're recruiting at under sixes. It's this fear factor from clubs trying to, you know, hog the best talent or corral the best talent into their, into their academy. Uh, and it's, you know, they're frightened to miss the talent because their jobs depend on it. You know, if, if you're not producing players, you know, your board of your football club are going to ask questions. And there's another issue there is the finance that's being put into academies now. You know, when I was when I first started, I was the only full-time coach in the youth programme. Now there's probably 20 full-time coaches in youth programmes. You know, and, and and other support staff with sports science, medical, education, welfare, etc., etc. So the expenditure now is is massive. So boards now are looking more and more at youth academies than they ever did. They let it get on with it years ago because oh, they, they were investing, but they weren't investing massive amounts of money. And as long as you, you produce the player every other year, you know, they were quite happy. But now the pressure's on. Um, questions are being asked about, you know, we're spending X amount of million on this academy. Where's the players? Yeah. What's the point of adding an academy? I'm spending five million on an academy. I might as well scrub the academy and spend five million on a ready-made player every summer for a first team. And uh, I suppose if you were 
the chairman of or owner of a football club, you, that's a question you might be asking your What's, youth what's your thoughts then about Brentford? They did the similar sort of thing, right? They I think it's sad that they felt they had to do that. I, yeah. I really do. But I can understand where they were coming from. You know, they're, they're in West London. They're on the doorstep of Chelsea, on the doorstep of QPR, on the doorstep of um, the other big club, Fulham. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that have got uh, big academies. Uh, Fulham and Chelsea, certainly category one. Yeah. Fulham category, uh, QPR category two, I believe now. So they felt that maybe that they couldn't recruit the best players in that area. So what was the point if we were getting the second rate player What's the point of us having an academy? I suppose as well. Then, like the argument is also, if they did have a good player, someone's just going to come in. And someone's going to anyway. pinch him. Yeah. If they did get one, someone would have come and pinch him. And the compensation is not adequate for, for their investment and their time. Um, so I can understand where they're coming from. I must be honest. You know, in a big club like Chelsea, they've got all the resources. It's not to knock Chelsea. That's what they have. Got a fantastic training ground. Got a fantastically well-run academy with with Neil Bath, and and it's well financed. So they can afford to. You know, scout everywhere, be everywhere, know where the best players are and, and try to attract them to their club. So if you're on their doorstep, it's going to be very difficult for you. Uh, I was going to come to this later, but what if you're, I mean, I was going to let's come to this later while we're on the subject. What if you're not on their doorstep? So one of the things, obviously I worked at Chelsea and Tottenham uh, for many years and you realise uh, in that time that Chelsea, the big fish in mm. London, I mean, they're taking players from not just Brentford, but from every club, yeah. aren't they? So everyone's yeah. even like a... You know, top, from past from Tottenham, or yeah. you know, there's some, you know. So, what was your what was your thoughts about you know being in the, within that environment, being a big club at West Ham, but also then you know a Chelsea coming so in bigger and than us, players? yeah, yeah, bigger than West Ham, of course. I mean, certainly, um, there's two arguments to be had there. I think first and foremost, they're 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 highlighting and targeting the best players in London within their catchment, hour hour and a half. So all players in London are going to be vulnerable to a club like Chelsea, a club like Arsenal, the big clubs that have got the, the, the finance, the wherefore and the staff to be able to do that. So there's that. The argument then again is if they do, do, they do go to this club and they are quite successful, when they get to about 16, 17, Chelsea and they're up, and I'm not knocking Chelsea, but Chelsea are going to then recruit the best players in Europe. So and in sometimes the best players around the world. So it won't be good enough that you're a midfield player being the best midfield player in England. You've then got to be the best midfield player in the world, arguably, or maybe at least Europe. One, to stay pace with what's coming in, and two, to get in, in the first team. So Chelsea have now got this model where they've got 20, 30 players out on loan, and they loan these players to clubs in Europe and, and elsewhere to give to give these players to get these players a value so they become a, a valuable asset so they then sell them for more than they recruited them for so it's uh, it, it becomes a business model rather than a development model and that's the way the game's going I'm, unfortunately and I'm not knocking Chelsea in any way shape or form you know I know way it runs I know Neil Bath very well I get on with him very well I've got a lot of respect for them but that's the way the game's going um, and so it's up to a club, you know, like when I was at West Ham, for us to come in and put those arguments to the young players that we had and said, look, they're a better club in some respects. They've got a better training ground. They've got better facilities, etc., etc., etc. They'll probably give you more wages in terms of when they sign you as a professional. But 
your pathway here at West Ham is going to be a lot easier getting into the first team environment. So that was the argument we tried, and it didn't always work, but that was the argument we tried to uh, employ when we felt we were going to lose perhaps one of our better players. But that's the nature of the beast, I'm afraid. So tracking back a little bit then, talking about when you first took over, what, tell us about the, the philosophy of the academy, the methodology. What, what did you imprint well, that and where did that come from? Yeah, like the, where that come from Ron Greenwood, really, initially, when he first came to the club. I wasn't there at that time. But he was first team coach at Arsenal when he came to West Ham as manager. Not not very many people know that, but he was on our, he was an academy, uh, sorry, assistant manager at uh, assistant coach, first team coach at uh, Arsenal. West Ham recruited him in the early 60s to become their manager, and he completely changed the philosophy of the club. I, I would liken what Ron did to West Ham as what Wenger did at Arsenal when he first went there. Changed the whole philosophy. You know, whereas training in them days uh, for the first team was, you know, running. Manager was walking. Manager stood on the touchline in, in a suit and a pipe, probably or a fag, and uh, just watched the players run around the pitch. They had a five-a-side, did a few sprints, and that was it every day. Uh, where Ron came in and um, every day was training with a ball, so everybody in pairs individually had a ball. So every day, players had a ball to improve technique and skill. <coughs> he was very much a, an advocate of the way the game was played in Europe. And I think he was very influenced by the Hungarians when they came over uh, many years before and give England a lesson in... in the, and yeah, South. Yeah, yeah. Um, give England a lesson in technique and, uh, and philosophy. And I think Ron tried to uh, in, in, impose a very technical program at West Ham United so it was always pass and move pass and move you know keep it his mantra was always keep it simple play the way you're facing make your first pass a forward pass all simple things and his his mantra when I first come across him was we're trying to develop good habits in young players if you develop good habits in players now those all these things we're trying to improve them become second nature so when I started to get involved and when I was an apprentice there Every duck train every day was with a ball. Very rarely running for the sake of running, other than pre-season training where it was all running around the forest up the hills for two weeks. But um, certainly everything was technically based. So you talk about technically based, what, did, what does that session look like then with the ball? Well, the session would be, you, you know, you'd be in pairs and you'd be just passing the ball. Or it, one player would set a ball back and run. And you'd have to chip it into his run. Yeah. And then you'd just go and join him. Yeah. And, and you'd set it back and you'd make a run and he'd chip it into your run. Yeah. So all things like that. So, but it was, so there was technique and movement. Yeah. And then he would encourage that into three. So it was, you know, play into that player who sets it back to the third player. Because in the area, of, you know, in that triangle. Yeah. And this player that played the first ball makes the run and he hits the, the run of the third man run. Yeah. So, you know, he was, he was very big on third man running. And um, I took that into my training with the young players. Yeah. You know, when I sp sp spoke to uh, Rio Ferdinand many, many years after I'd had him as a youth team player, he was playing for Manchester United. I bumped into him. First thing he said to me, he said, "You're still doing third man running." <laughs> so I said, "Yeah, I am." He said, it's, "He said it stayed with me." Yeah. He said it stayed with me. He said, "You know that 
up, back, and even well, that's the, when the, the people from my ex we spoke to on the very show, they said the same, that big part of their philosophy is the third man run as well. That's yeah. a key element of their uh, philosophy. Key element. I mean, and we, I, I always, because we, we would then, as the lads progressed it it, it, it would have to be done, everything had to be done one touch. Yeah. So the ball in had to be playable. So <laughs> whenever, whenever I was coaching, whenever I uh, saw a player give a player ball to another player, whether it was 10 yards or 50 yards, the, the object was that ball, when it arrived at its target, had to be playable. So if I smash it at you from 10 yards away, you're fighting to control it. It's unplayable. Yeah. Yeah. So I've got to then give a ball that's playable. Now, whether I want to play it one touch or not is then my choice. But, you know, I'm not making that choice for you, but I'm giving you that option. So it was up one touch, playable, back one touch, playable. The, the run hit the runner. So it drops into an area, either just in front of him, or if you're bending it round or planting it along the ground, it's running alongside him. Yeah. Just sl- so it arrives slightly in front of him. So what you're talking about is a very progressive type of football, right? Yeah. And what interests me now is thinking about the conventional way England have played in the past, the first team maybe in the Sir Charles Hughes method, you know, which is a bit more direct. Yeah. Uh, you know, what is that like trying to get players to play in that, in maybe when they're producing a more traditional direct game? And also talk about when you're getting coaches in and then you're implanting these, you've got the new coaches coming in as the academy grows. Yeah. How do you encourage them to coach and play this way when maybe you know it's not the traditional way of playing in England well I can only speak for the way you know I did things you know one of the first things um, I would I would tell a player ask a player that whenever he receives the ball I want to think that his first option has got to be a forward pass so whether it's a back player I'll say to the back player can you hit can you hit the target can you hit the, the striker or one of the, as it is now, the front three. Can you hit the? T- if you can't, why can't you? Because you know the opposition is going to drop off too deep. There's no space behind the their midfield to drop it in. So now we've got to build it from the back. But I want the first pass forward. But if I can hit the front player and bypass midfield, that's what I want them to do. So it wasn't as if you've got to play five yards, got to play ten yards. Can I hit the front player? If I can't, I've got to then have other choices and then build our way through. So I mean, I suppose the, uh, the conventional work one might have been there's a big man at the top, put it up there for yeah. him to win the header. I mean, so or, or, or Ron, Greenwood, Ron Greenwood used to coach us years and years ago, and he used to, we used to be in practices. We used to be 40 yards apart, and it, he'd say, "I want you to just chip it to your partner." But what we want you to do is imagine there's a hoop, just about a yard in front of your partner. I want you to try and drop that ball into that imaginary hoop. So as I was dro- chip, I'm chipping it just to a yard into that imaginary hoop so that player has to come and get it yeah. it comes off a yard yeah. and obviously tries to control it before it bounces or get, get there as it bounces or, or plays it as it bounces whether he sets it or flicks it on or whatever um, you know and, 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 and Ron always used to say if you're playing in midfield or you're playing up front where you're back to goal you've got to, get, you've got to play on the half turn and um, these are all the things that I was taught as a young player that, that took me into my coaching for many many years and when I first started at West Ham as a young uh, part time coach I got interviewed by Ron Greenwood and he said to me just do the things you did do, just do the things that you did when you were here as a player that's all he said to me you just do the things that you were taught when you were here as a player so take all those things you've learned and, and, and impart them onto the next generation of young players 
So it's all simple things like that, you know, drop it into a hoop a yard in front. So you're not aiming at the play, aiming at the space just in front of him. Mm. So you're just dropping it into his feet. Again, that mantra, can you drop a ball into a player that's playable? Now you might have to have two touches, but you know, at least one to touch, one to control, or one to control, one to pass, or turn, whatever the, the skill you, you're demanding. What, you, what we would never say to a young player, any young player ever, is you must do this. Never ever do that, I mean, in my opinion. Never ever say you must do this. Now, first team managers might be saying that to their, uh, to their team. Um, and say, like, when you get the ball to the back, just hit the front. Don't think about anything else. When you play in midfield, if it just comes to you in midfield, all I want you to do is hook it on. Don't want you to think about getting it down, trying to... So, obviously, he's now playing percentages, playing for points, playing for his, his livelihood every week. But if you're a developer of a young player, hopefully you've got more time to, to do that so he can be a bit more patient with the young players. You know, and, 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 but never, in my opinion, tell them what to do. Show them options. Remember, when we, if, I was, if we're coaching, and I might stop it, the ball goes into a player and he turns, looks forward, plays it and gives it away. And I'd say, stop. I wouldn't say, you should have done this, you should have. I'd say to him, what did you see? What was you trying to do? And he'd say, oh, I just tried to hit the striker, but he comes short and I'll play long, for instance. And I'd say, because I'd frozen, I'd say, now have a look to your left. And he'd go, did, did you see Jimmy out there, free as a bird on the left-hand side, no one around him. If you'd have just got your head up and, you know, and got a picture earlier, you might have transferred it on a diagonal and we would be attacking down that left-hand side. And he'd go, oh, yeah, yeah. So it was then about, before the ball arrives, try and get a picture. Try and get a picture in your mind of the play. Trying to get a picture of what's on, where your players are. Get on the half turn, be doing this all the time, swiveling and, and looking, getting pictures in your head. So when the ball comes to you, you've got a good idea of where your players are. But I then say to that player, if you didn't see him, if you didn't see Jimmy out on that left-hand side, you can't play the pass. So I wouldn't moan at him. I'd just say, if you, couldn't, if you didn't see him, you couldn't play it to him if he'd have said to me yeah I saw him but I thought that I'd go well that might have been the better choice so in other words he's seen him but he's chose that one and in, in, in that occasion the wrong choice and I'd say to him maybe that might have been the better choice that's all I would say and then let them work out, work out for themselves the next time a ball came to him or the next time uh, they were in that sort of situation so talk a bit about when the academy starts to grow and you, you need to recruit coaches yeah. how, do, how do you go about that process of recruiting what are you looking for yeah. And then what, what's the coach development uh, look like? Yeah, I, f- I found that, um, whereas for, for years and years and years, I've done it um, with a very, very small team of staff. Uh, and when the academy started to grow, especially with EPPP, um, where coaches, we more had to double the coaches because we now got two coaches with every team. I found that difficult to find the right coaches, I have to say. So first and foremost, it was minimum qualification, UA for B, level three. Same for goalkeeper coaches. And then I'd ask them to come in and do a 30-minute session. I wouldn't tell them what to do. I'd say, well, you put on your favourite session or the session you feel most comfortable with, age appropriate. If it's under 10s, you know, don't have them shooting for 30 yards. 
age-appropriate session, uh, and then I'd watch them. Um, and I'd be more interested in their personality than in the in in every rather than in every little coaching point they were bringing out. I had to satisfy myself they understood what they would they were doing, but I was more interested in the personality of the individual than the uh, than anything else, the character, because especially with the very young ones, they're going to hang on your every word, and um, you've got to give you've got to put on sessions, coaching sessions, maybe two or three times a week for these young kids. You've got to make it interesting. You've got to make it fun. You've got to make it enjoyable, and your personality is going to be keen to all that. I want them players after every session to want to come back for the next one. So if you're too overbearing or you're too bombastic or you're too demanding or you're too critical, the players are going to go, mm, Dad, I, I, don't like, I don't like it over there anymore. I, I'm not enjoying it anymore. Because that, that's what, you, that's what you, you, you can get. So that then gives them an excuse if they're one of your better players to seek uh, elsewhere. And I think if you if you if you if you create the the, the right environment, players don't want to leave. They get ingrained in what you're trying to do. They get ingrained in the way you do it. They get ingrained in the fun of it, the enjoyment of it, and at the same time learning. Uh, because I think all, a mixture of all those things has to go into you into your sessions a mixture of all those things it's still got to be fun even though it's a professional environment it still has to be fun and uh, there's nothing wrong with sometimes having a little bit of laughter on the training pitch although some I see are so serious and are so there's still got to be there's still got to be an element of uh, of that of course it's, you know it is a serious environment trying to develop players to play in the Premier League of course but the journey isn't you know there's got to be highs and lows there's got to be ups and downs and there's got to be fun as well involved in all that uh, so it's still you know if you're a 10 year old you've got a 10 year old son or 8 year old son and, and, and you go what was it like today son what, did you enjoy it he goes no I didn't enjoy it you know it was, the coach kept moaning all the time kept shouting at me he ain't going to enjoy it is he so he's not, he's not going to develop as a player he's not going to he's not going to evolve as a player he's got to he's got to enjoy it and I think um if you've got players that enjoy what they do, you've got half a chance of developing them and making them better. And what about getting your coaches to coach the West Ham way? What's the uh, what's Yeah, the well, obviously you know? we would have regular in-service training days. Um, and and I, I would be at most of the training sessions and walk around two or three evenings a week. And, and I'd be at all the games on a Sunday. I'd never miss a Sunday. So I'd have my 18s on a Saturday. Sunday. I used to enjoy Sundays because I wasn't. I didn't have the responsibility of actually running a team, so I could go round the various age groups and um, and watch how they were doing, see how the players were developing, seeing how the coach was shaping up his team and developing his team. And I might just subtly just throw a couple of little things in to say, I think you might be best to match them up in midfield. You know, you're you're two against their three, you're getting outplayed, and that's where your problem is. Even though you're, you you want to play that way, you know they're better at that than you. So you might have to match them up today. So I'm trying to make them a little bit tactically aware that way. Or I'd say to them, get your front players just to hit the front men earlier. 
know, they're trying to, you're trying to get them to play, but they're playing at the wrong time in the wrong areas. Now, if there's a channel at the front, hit the front player, let's just let them join from there. So your mid midfield player comes short, the ball bypasses the midfield player, goes into the, and his natural reaction's got to be then spin and join. So, in the end, I would then, over time, they would sort of get the way we are playing. Obviously, they'd come and watch the youth team play and see how we're trying to do things. Um, and, and, and over time, you it's not a you know a two-week job. It you have to, it takes time to do that. And what about then, for instance, if you're in you're watching one of the sessions midweek and you see something which you don't really think is appropriate appropriate yeah. for the West Ham way, how yeah. do you deal with that? Yeah, I'd step in. I'd just okay. step in. I just I'd be quite polite about it. I wouldn't be bombastic about it. If it was the coach. John, I go, excuse John, let me just make, can I just come and make a point? Yeah. And he go, yeah, of course, yeah. But he wouldn't say no. <laughs> so I'd, I'd then go in and make the point. Yeah. And say, instead of moving it down there every time you get it, just try and play, play, off, play off one of your midfield players or try and play it into one of your wide players. Or if it was a centre-back, just get woofing it down there, you know, indiscriminately. I'd say, can you try and get one of your full-backs to play? Get them out wide and just try and get one of your full-backs to play or... Money support players, so I'd subtly just, you know, say a bit, and then hope the coach, and I'd say to him, "Oh, what do you think of that?" And he'd, he'd go, "Yeah, I see your point. I see your point." You know, I wouldn't be bombastic about him, or certainly wouldn't um, dig him out in yeah. front of the, the players or anything like that, or in the parents that are watching. I try to do it very subtly, and then have a quiet word. I mean, I watched a player once, a coach once. And he took seven minutes to go from one part of a session to another part of a session because he was setting it up, you know. He took seven minutes, I timed it. So he, it was a cold evening, he, was, he did a little uh, preliminary little pass move part. It was quite good, that's good, no problem. Players enjoyed it. I mean, okay, stop there, just gonna set this up. Took him seven minutes to set it up. Set him afterwards, that took you seven, he said, no, and never. What were the boys doing at the time? Just fiddling, just fiddling. You know, nothing, doing nothing. Mm. So I said, um, that took you seven minutes to get out. He said, well, I, I, was, I said, well, no. One, maybe you could have half prepared it before you started, so you were going to move from there to there. And then if you needed to just add a little bit, you could have done that within a, a minute. And while the boys are perhaps having a quick drink and moving over or putting different bibs on or whatever it was, was that to do, you're then ready. So it took too long. I said, and the, ploys, the boys then are distracted, get disinterested, and you've got to lift them again to go again and he was a bit indignant about it to be honest so the I suppose that's quite an interesting point isn't it it's about a lot of I think people think automatically about uh, coach development and courses being all about you know methodology this is, how you, this is what you're going to coach how yeah. you coach it rather than a little bit of the organisational tool yeah of course like you say especially with the younger players yeah about you know no dead time you know, much exactly. more time as possible yeah and so how do you you know get that into your coaches as well yeah exactly take it for granted <coughs> next time he coached I got our IT department to film him. He didn't know, but I got him to. I got them to film him, and uh, he did. He didn't do the same again. But he did something similar again. So I gave him the DVD. I said, "Have a look at that, and come back next Tuesday and tell me what you think." He went. I, I, didn't, I thought that was all right. I said, "It was better than it was before." I said, "But you've got to cut the time down between, you know." your introductory session or your warm-up session into your main theme. So you've got to cut that time down because you've only got an hour and it's, you know, you're starting to lose 
you know, the, 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 your players, they're starting to get distracted. In the end, the, the coach, I moved him on because he, he never quite grasped it. Yeah. He, it was, this is the way I do it, and this is the way I do it. And I, I had to move him on in the end. I was going to say, it's quite interesting because other academy managers we've talked in the past, they've gone into a club maybe and tried to change the culture, change philosophy. You're quite unique in the terms that you, you, know, you created it and you were there and you know, so yeah. people coming into this. Oh, I inherited it. But I mean, you, you yeah. very much were the, you know, the, the academy. And, and then I drove it from, yeah. that, from that yeah. point. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll make a lot of my basic, a lot of my basic work was unopposed. Yeah. Trying to drill habits into players. Yeah. Um, the only criteria was, uh, depending on what it was, it had to be done at match pace, it had to be done quickly. Yeah. And uh, where, where one or two touch was needed, it had to be done one or two touch. Yeah. So the ball in, the ball back, the ball, the through ball, or the ball wide, the shot, the cross, whatever it, you ended up, the end product. Yeah. You know, it's all about the quality. Quality, quality, quality. So there's, a, there's that big... Um debate at the moment about the you know the uh, merits of unopposed training into yeah. games related stuff yeah you mentioned games to teacher earlier so what, what's your thoughts on that yeah I, mean, I, I think you've got to have a mixture of both of course yeah. not all your practice can be unopposed because ultimately you've got to play a game yeah. you know and there's 11 other you know eager kids trying to you know undo what you're trying to do so ultimately you have to put what your practice is into real life game situations so We'd we'd have a lot of we'd have a lot of unopposed technical training, and then we'd go into opposed um, themes. Maybe we might use an overload to to try and get some measure of success, especially with the younger ones. Now, if you're looking to say link passes in, you might be better to overload. You know, five against three as an argument in in, a, in an area with a targets and and. and you know, might just run the ball over the line and put your foot on the ball as a, as an, you know, um, an objective. So all different ways of doing it, or small, there's small goals and scoring a small goal, etc., etc. Or you, before you score, you got to play off a front player, or there's a target play, all sorts of ways. So you, you've obviously got to add opposition because the opposition give you the problems that you have to overcome. Um, so all the time you're doing even unopposed practice. You've always got to be mindful that if, if opposition were in there, what, what problems would they give? So if a player stood and waited for the ball to arrive, I'd go, stop. Do you think if we had opposition here, that <coughs> ball would arrive at your feet? And he'd go, no. I'd go, well, why wouldn't it? Because the defender would step in front, wouldn't he? So he says, yeah, he would. So I said, well, how are you going to counter that? So you'd say, well, I'll come and meet the ball. Mm. So... I suppose the challenges you, I found as well is that you develop those that, habits. That really unimportant, unopposed work is that, like I say, the way it's done, the tempo it's done, yeah, it, exactly. the quality that you're yeah, getting. If it's yeah. not, it's half paced and people aren't tuned yeah. in. And no, exactly. It's a waste of time then. It's a waste of time. I suppose then that's the uh, the quality of the coach coming through. How to yeah. deal with that? Yeah, and some of the some of the less experienced coaches don't see that, or they don't see it because they haven't they haven't been through it. Yeah, they haven't been through it. So. Not all practice should be unopposed, and likewise, not all, pa all practice has got to be has got to be opposed. Mm. Um, so, if you're trying to teach um, twelve-year-olds heading, you're not going to put a centre half up along the side of the centre forward and throw a ball in the air or chip a ball up there and mm. say edit because he's going to get smashed and crashed yeah. all over the place. Yeah. So you've got to develop the technique first. Yeah. You've got to develop the technique of where to head it, body shape, leap, jump, or you know, 
one, two, three, off one foot, etc., etc. So you develop that technique. So yeah. then, then you start to put the passive opposition in, and then you start to put the real thing in, and hopefully, through time and effort and practice, he's developed a good enough technique to be able to, you know, win his fair share of, you know, the balls, you know, in the air, or it's whether it's defensively or whether it's in attack. So I, th I think it's a process. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a process because. What you're trying to do with that eight-year-old, you're trying to develop that eight-year-old to be a professional at 18. So you've got 10 years, in effect, to, to get him to where he wants to be or where you want him to be. So you, it's a 10-year program. So to put, you know, put straight away, you're putting in opposition straight away. Now, when are you going to get the time to develop the, the skills and techniques required? Um, so why do, why do we coach... If we're, coach, if we're coaching or encouraging, I won't say coach dribbling, I don't think you encourage dribbling, I don't think you coach it, I think you encourage it. So you go, go on, run with the ball, take him on. Because he might be better at taking him on on the inside and you're trying to teach him to take him on on the outside. So you say to him, go on, take him on, see if you can beat him. So it might initially just be a pole stuck in the ground. Run at that pole, go left or right, go whatever way you want to go, and then make that final pass across the goal, if that's what the practice and someone comes in and puts it in the goal. So he might be better at going on the inside. He might be better at going on the outside. He might show you something. You go, oh, Christ, and you could do that. Mm. So same with turns. You know, you, you, you teach them a back foot turn. You teach them to roll it off the outside of the foot. Then you put them in a situation up against the mannequin maybe and say, roll the ball and go, I want you to turn with it and roll that, that mannequin and beat him. And he might show you something. Oh, well done! I never, I didn't know you had that in you. So, I think it's important that, it, like all development, it's, it's a two-way thing. If you're constantly telling the player, you must do it this way, you must do it that way, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you're taking that initiative away from the player. I think. I think it's a good point you make there, Tony, because a lot of the people who are these advocates of the, the just playing games we always talk about oh you know it's, it's not a linear process it's not a one-way process and we're saying actually it's not we're not saying it's a one-way process but we're saying you know it's two-way players will show you something but then you know you can't just I think I think there's a there's a, a risk of taking technique for granted you know with this just letting them get on with it in a I, game I would and, agree and and just yeah. people like you say who maybe haven't worked in youth development a lot of people maybe from uh, the sports science community who haven't actually worked with players you know yeah. young players and I think that's where there's a bit of a, a, a breakdown don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying you've got to do it the way I do it. All I'm just saying is the way I did it and the way I advocated, advocated it. And uh, it worked quite well for me. It worked quite well. Um, but unless the player buys into what you're trying to do with him, you don't want to lose her anyway. Mm. The player's got to buy into it. And, and, and as they get a little bit older, they've got to start to take a little bit of responsibility as well for their own development. So it's, you know, they start buying into what you're trying to teach them. They get maybe go away and practice it themselves as well. But certainly the ultimate test is a game. The ultimate test, whether it's five aside, whether it's eight aside, whether it's 11 aside, that's the, that's the ultimate test. I mean, I'd always said Monday to Friday is our revision. Saturday is our exam. That's how I would say it to the player. So we're practicing in the week. We're, we're practicing for the exam on Saturday better crosses, better passing, better defending, more compactness, depending on what we're working on. You know, more sh goals to shot, shots to goal ratio, more shots on target. 
this is what we're working towards. Now, the exam is Saturday. See if we've passed or failed the exam Saturday. And then we go back to work Monday, do a bit more revision. So I always put it, I always put it in those terms for, the, for young players. And how, and how important is the technical detail for that, you know? I'm, I'm, for me, te the technique is everything. The technical detail is everything. Because one, you've got to be te technically, technically proficient. Because they can't perform the, the given task if they're not. It takes them too long to do it. It takes them, you know. And plus the fact, not only technically, uh, in a physical sense, they've got to be clever between the ears. They've got, they've got to understand the game. They've got, they, they've got to see the game. They've got to study the game. I mean, a young Frank Lampard always knew his next pass, even as a youngster. Always knew his next pass. And uh, I took Frank... Um, to a Premier League um, with all the Premier League coaches all the heads of the academies we was up in Manchester and Frank was playing for Man City on his last knockings uh, when he was playing I said would you come along to the McDonald Hotel and do a little seminar with, with the coaches and the little questions and answers so the Premier League asked me to ask him and I, I said yeah I'd ask him and he, he came along and they, they had a footage of Frank playing for Chelsea and uh, it was just on Frank. It wasn't on the game. It was just Frank for about five minutes, it was. And constantly for five minutes, he's doing this. Got the ball, bang. Scanning. So he's scanning scanning the, all the time. Checking shots oh, all the time. <laughs> yep. Constantly, absolutely constantly. And when the film finished, Frank said, I didn't realise I did that. Wow. Unbelievable. Even I was taken aback. I said, you didn't realise? He said, no. So I didn't realise I did that. He said, because... Um, he said, I'd always done it. It was just ingrained. Yeah. It was that habit. And So talk about that then, Tony. Can you remember him doing that sort of thing in academy football? Yeah, I do. I, I do remember him, perhaps not, as he, not quite as... Um, vigorously. Vigorously or as, or as effective. Yeah. But it constantly, uh, um, at youth team football, academy football, he could play one and two touch as good as anybody. He, had, he, knew, he always knew his next pass, whether it was short or whether it was long. What time did you get Frank into the academy? About 13. Okay. About 13. He was, he, he'd done the rounds because obviously his dad yeah. been an ex-pro, ex-England international. And I knew his dad very well. I played with Frank's dad in the youth team at West Ham. So we've been mates for years. So um, obviously he eventually chose, chose West Ham. And um, I think maybe because of his dad, but certainly if... if if another club had been, um, you know, what he wanted, I'm sure he would have gone there. But he chose West Ham, which I was ever so great. We were, we were at the club, we we're ever so grateful for. And um, so that's at 13, he was a top player. He was like no, he wasn't a top player at 13. No. He was a good player at 13. Yeah. He was a good player at 13. Um, but what he was very good at was receiving the ball and passing the ball. That's what he was very good at. And because because of who he had behind him, his dad, yeah, uh, and then eventually his uncle became the manager, yeah, at Redknapp, and uh, he was excellent for the youth team. Uh, him and Rio Ferdinand were in the same youth team, and they sort of rubbed off each other. They were big mates. They became big friends. Even though Frank was a public schoolboy, and Rio come from the council estate Peckham. in Peckham, <laughs> they become good good yeah. good mates, and. Um, those two, if you had said to Rio, for instance, 
what we need to do is just drop it into there like that. Get the ball, get it out of your feet and just drop it. He'd go, well, like this. Go, yeah, yeah, like that. <laughs> he could just do it. Yeah. They were very proficient in that respect. But where they were different, they, were, they, they, were, they weren't content to be in the youth team. They didn't want to be with me. Yeah. Not because they didn't want to be with me. They wanted to be in the reserve team. They wanted to be training with senior players. And when they got playing in the reserve team, they wanted to be in the first team. They wanted to be in the first team pool. They were very hungry, very eager. You know, and added to their game. Rio went on loan to Bournemouth and Mel Machin was the manager. And he came back and said, technically good, this, that and the other, very good. You know, at our level, this Bournemouth probably the second division then. Said his heading's not very good. He ducks a little bit when he heads. You know, he's got to improve his heading. And he was six foot four, six foot three at that time. Um, so perhaps as a young defender, he took for granted. That, you know, he could head the ball, but you're playing in the second lower tiers of the division. The ball's always in the air. Yeah. And it's a big, ugly centre forwards bashing you about. So he, he, he sort of developed that side of it. And Frank, he, he worked on his physicality. He's running, he's sprinting. He used to do sprints every day. He used to do, you know, running box to box. He used to just do box to box running. He used to come on his day off and just do running. Relative to his position, running box to box. He'd run from one box to the other box, jog back. Sprint to the far end box, jog back. To get little markers, put his, he used to put spikes on. He bought a pair, of, a pair of sprinting spikes, make him get on his toes. He used to do little 10 yard sprints just to make him feel a little bit quicker and he just do them to the left to the right little turns and so he'd do all that by himself he'd do that all by himself he'd do that all by himself and uh, that's what made him the player he was and he, and he, he, he took that for his career they tell me at Chelsea he was always standing behind after training doing taking free kicks doing sprinting days off he'd come in um, always doing extras always doing extras fitness became fitness fitness mad so you talk, just to think about that as a, do you think that's a really important asset of players who go the extra, go that further yeah, next level? People who do that a bit extra away from training? 100%. Jermaine Defoe would finish training, he'd go, Tone, can we do some extra shooting? Always want to do shooting, relative to his, to his game. So I used to put shooting on, making him come in on at angles and shooting to the far post. And I'd say to him, you know, if the keeper shows you near post, don't worry about the far post, stick it in the near post. You know, if the keeper's overcompensated because he's hit a few in there, if he's, if he's half going, just stick it in. You know, just little challenges all the time. Uh, and, and Jermaine reminds me of that when I, when, whenever I bump into him. All them extras we used to do. And say, well, you know, you're a goal scorer and you've continued to score goals. So it must have done... Rubbed. I mean, don't get me wrong, I should do it with a lot of players. I didn't all make England, the England team or the Premier League, but I should do it with all, a lot of the players. So yeah. it wasn't unique, it was with those sorts of players. But what, 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 what's unique about that, that, that group of players that came through over that probably a 10, 15 year period, you know, from Paul Ince, Stuart Slater and all them, I had, I had all those, Paul Allen, Tony Cotty, Stevie Potts, Stuart Slater, you know, what they had about them was that they had a desire to become better. And that's, uh, in some players I see today, that's lacking. Talent, but not the not real desire. They haven't really been shown. Is that the right word to use? They don't really know what it takes to get there. They haven't been shown what it what it what you need 
to get there. And why, what do you think that? Do you think it's too much, too young, and that sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, I think it becomes too comfortable. I, w- I won't speak about West Ham's training ground because it's very basic. I don't know if you've been over, you must have done yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, of course. Very basic. Yeah. But sometimes that was the uniqueness of it because there was no frills. Yeah. You go to Tottenham's training ground, you know, obviously yeah. at, at uh, Chesson, or not Chesson, wherever it is, Enfield, and uh, you go to Chelsea's training ground, Cobham, state-of-the-art. So these players at eight years of age, this is normal. You know, training on billiard table type pitches, this is normal. Being coached by three coaches, this is normal. You know, balls and technical work and pass move, pass move with, with very, very good players. That becomes normal. So they ain't been taught to, they ain't been taught to fight and scrap. They ain't been taught to now I'm not advocating that you teach them to fight and scrap, but the harshest of the reality of becoming a professional footballer is you've got to have an inner steel, you've got to have an inner desire, you've got to have an inner drive. And I think, how do we put that in our young players today? Because if, if you, a young player goes out on loan from, from, say, a West Ham or a Tottenham or a Chelsea or anyone for that matter, and they go to, should we say, Yeovil Town, I don't I'm just picking Yeovil out of, out, of the, out of the blue. Most of the, the uh, feedback that comes back is they're not tough, they don't compete, don't know how to compete, they get bullied off the ball and they're physically not well, they're not, they're not developed. So how do we prepare our players? Because they're not all going to be Premier League players. A lot of them probably... 95% of them are going to have to find a living outside the Premier League and in probably another 50% of them are going to have to earn a living probably outside the league and, and that's a tough environment down there it's about you know what you are mm. how you compete how you perform and how you uh, deal with the challenges that come in that respect. Do, do we challenge the players enough? So what, how did you um, deal with that at West Ham? What was your approach to trying to well, create those challenges, that environment? Well, initially, you, you're all hoping that they, they become players for you. And I'd always say to them, occasionally we can, the manager will ask for players to come up and train with them because he's free, I'm free short today. I need three players. Send me two midfield players and a forward, and that was their that was that those players' way of showcasing themselves in front of the manager. Or it might be that the I'll say to the manager, "I've got a young player here, Gaffer. I think you need to have a look at him." He go, "Send him with me tomorrow, and I'll, I'll I'll have a look." And I'd say to them, "If you get the chance to go up and train with the first team." Don't feel it's just a training session. You've got to then, that's your opportunity to show them what you're about. And many a time the player manager has came to me and go, who was that player sent up? I go, oh, that was Davy Jones. And he'd say, well, you weren't bad him. I'll, send, I'll have him tomorrow. Send him with me tomorrow. Uh, and that was their, their chance to sort of show, show what they're about. And I said to him, you know, get, you've got to get noticed. When you go out there, you've got to get noticed. There was one highlight I'd, we, we both, both groups used to train at uh, Chadwell Heath before we split sites. And uh, 
the manager come up, Frank Lampard come over, Harry Redknapp was the manager, said, we need a midfield player. Sanso's gone in injured. <coughs> so I sent over Michael Carrick. And um, as we were walking off the pitch at the end, both groups had finished. We had, a, we had an Israeli midfield player playing West Ham called um, Ayal Berkovich. If you remember him. Yep. And he said to me, Tony, Tony, he said, who is, who is this player? Can't do his accent, but <laughs> who is this player? So I said, Michael, I thought he was going to go, he ain't no good. He goes, I said, Michael Carrick. He said, he's a very good player. He said, he would take my place in the team. Wow. I said, yeah, he said, yeah. Not yet, he said, but he would take my place in the team. So not only would a manager notice, other players will notice. Yeah. Mark Noble is always full of chat, Mark, anyway, you know. I sent a player over to him once, over to, not to him, to the first team, and he come back, so who's that player you sent over? Oh, cheeky, you know, as Mark is. I said, that was so-and-so, uh, so-and-so. He go, flash little sod him, ain't he? <laughs> Jack the land, ain't he? He's got no chance him. But straight away, the player suss you out. Yeah. So, um, it's important that you try and keep them grounded, keep the reality that even if I give you a two-year contract, at the end of that two-year contract, you've got to earn another one. Yeah. If you're in the first team, you've got to play well enough to stay in the first team. Because if you don't, you're out. Of, you're out. You're off. You know, transferred in the reserves or whatever. So the challenge is always that to be on your best, do your best, and um, the challenge is always going to be there. You've never, you've never arrived. The challenge is always going to be there. Do you think there's a certain aspect maybe that some players just have that intrinsic uh, desire yeah, to do more yes. and maybe they've got more of a chance where some players just don't have that? And no question. Do you, do you think you can implant that in players and younger? Can you, can you try and can you change that? I'm not, that? I'm not sure you can change, change a character. Yeah. So you can improve someone's attitude. I mean, I, I don't mind saying it. Junior Stanislas, who's now playing for Bournemouth in the Premier League, doing very I mean, we had junior, our juniors, a youth player, young player, lazy, not not a great desire, great talent, very talented, not a great desire, bit bit flippant. Played in West Ham's first team, played in the Premier League for West Ham, but got released because he didn't have the he didn't have that inner desire to keep doing what you have to do to stay in the team. And he's had to go round the circle, come back again. He's now, I think he went to Burnley when they were in the lower divisions. Eddie Howe and Jason, uh, Jason Tyndall at, at um, Bournemouth were at Burnley for a while, saw Junior, and they brought him back down to Bournemouth. He's come on the journey with Bournemouth. He's now playing in the Premier League. And I saw him a couple of years ago. And he had, you know, as soon as he saw me, he started laughing. I said, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> so, yeah, I said, well done, you've done well. He said, he said if only I'd have listened to you when I was 18, 19. He said, I realise now. He said, I've, he said, I've got married or I've got a partner, so I've got kids. He said, I realise now, you, once you get responsibilities, you've got to knuckle down if you want to earn a good living. So the penny dropped eventually with Junior. So it, it can happen. It can happen, but sometimes they might have to go on a journey to, to, to get there. Talking about that journey, there's a, what's your thoughts on you know there's, there's more and more players now, like a Jane Vardy's for instance, have gone they've been released from academies early, yeah, and they've gone dropped down and worked their way up. Do you yeah. think there's a certain you know like you talk about the challenge and the having to fight your way back up? Do you think that's maybe a, 
a plus point now for some players, you know. Well, I think in Jamie Vardy's case, you've only got to look at the way he plays. You know, full of energy, full of running, very aggressive. Don't stop running. And it's, and it's a great asset for a, a, a forward. Ball goes over the top, he chases lost causes and, and puts the ball in the net. So maybe when he was younger, he perhaps wasn't as strong, wasn't as uh, effective, maybe wasn't as big. He's not massive now, but it wasn't wasn't particularly big. Maybe a smaller frame, and someone made the made the choice that he's he's not got, quite got it, and he's gone on that journey. But what he's maintained, I don't know him from Adam, but what he's maintained is that desire, and he showed it at Fleetwood, and has got recognised, and of course he's now in the England setup. So it can happen, it can happen. But unfortunately, too many players drop out of academies and give up on the game because maybe it's affected them psychologically. Uh, I'm not good enough, I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. F they fall out of love with a game. So that's why it's, very, it's a very delicate issue when you're releasing under 12s. So from under 12s, I think, it's, I think that's a real problem area. How, how do we maintain, keep players in the system mm. at that young age? Because for, for all those that get released, there's got to be there's got to be players that could be good enough to come again, that will develop a bit later, will show you know, what they're worth maybe at 14 because they're not quite got it at yes. 10 yeah. and, and they need that time. Clubs haven't got the time, haven't got the patience if you like. So I, I haven't got all the answers but it's certainly an issue. And just talk about one of your other, player, one of your other past players, interest me, Joe Cole, who mm. came to the academy from my area grew up in Camden. I yeah. remember as a young player, yeah. an amazingly talented, skillful player, one of the most skillful players to ever come out of the yeah. academy. A couple of questions. Number one, you know, it's a boy from Camden, North London, yeah. a Chelsea fan of the family. How did you manage to recruit him, you know, instead of in that, that environment? And then two, yeah. how do you um, deal with a player like that, a dribbler, and like such an amazing talent, and, you know, and, and you're in, a, in a maybe a West Ham way philosophy, which is very yeah, much pass and move. He, 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 was, he, was a, he was a little bit easier because of his talent. But certainly, he did the rounds of every club in the country. Went around collecting tracksuits and shirts from, the, from all the other clubs. I believe he went on, even went on to coach to Wembley with Chelsea, when Glenn Odden was the manager. They said, come on the coach, and they win one of the finals. But his, his, his dad, George, um, always said to us, he'll sign for West Ham. And I go, well, look, it'd be a lot healthier if you sign this form, George. <laughs> yeah. We put it in the drawer yeah. and we'll we register it when you, when you come back. Because he was going to do the rounds of all the clubs. He said, there's my contract. And he shook our hand, me and Jimmy Hampson, yeah. Chief Scout. He shook our hand. And he said, there's my contract. So... But what, what Joe liked about West Ham, I mean, Joe will probably speak himself, or probably has spoken himself about it, was he liked the environment. He liked the freedom he was given to play. And when he was in the youth team, I, I, we started to play three at the back, five in midfield, and uh, a number 10. I didn't call it number 10 then, I called it a free roll. You got a free roll. Yeah. And uh, Joe was that free role. Now, nowadays, it's my wife. Just a minute. <laughs> nowadays, it's uh, call it a number ten. Hello. I mean, Joe. Joe was 
we had a promise that he would uh, he would stay at, he would come to West Ham. But what I think he liked was the, the environment. He liked the people. Um, he liked the welcome. You know, his family liked the welcome. They liked the environment. Very down to earth. No airs and graces. Uh, we gave him that freedom. I, I played three at the back, a five in midfield, a striker, and a number ten. As I said. We didn't call it number 10 then, I called it a free roll. I gave Joe that free roll, and I was, you know, obviously encouraged him just to get in little pockets behind the midfield and get in the ball. And when he, when he got in those areas, he'd do lots of damage. So he was given that freedom to do that, to develop his... What about earlier on in his academy career when he was a younger player? He would, he would go through all the same drills and practices yeah. in terms of pass, move. and But with Joe, you always had to give him licence. And I think what, we, what I never did and all the coaches that, that worked with Joe, what we never did was that we never said, don't do this, you can't do that. We never said that. And I think that's what he liked. Um, we, we would, if, he made, if he went on a dribble and he lost it, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't criticise. Because of the talent that he had, we'd say, no, don't worry about it, don't worry, it's not a problem, not a problem, do it again. And, uh, but what he did, what Joe, people don't realise with Joe, is when he was, a, a young player when he lost the ball he'd go after it he had a desire he, you know, he'd put his foot in and he'd have a tackle and he, he, he would uh, you know he had a real enthusiasm he didn't just run with it dribble lose it and walk back like Ronaldo does or what he did was when he was younger yeah. you know he had, a, he had a real desire to get, get, get after the ball um, and win it back and often would and then win it back drag it through the legs of somebody get on it and then go on another dribble and hurt the opposition and, and he invariably set up a goal or score a goal so it was a talent, it was a sort of precocious sort of talent that you had to manage in a, in a very delicate way. You couldn't say to him, you've got to play one and two touch, Joe, because I didn't want to take away what he was good at. You know, we would say to him, play one and two touch when it's appropriate. If you think it's right, just play them, just set it and run, and we'll play you in, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll set you away in space. You haven't always got to get it in dribble. Maybe someone just set it and run. Um, so he, he sort of developed his game like that. When he went to Chelsea from West Ham, <coughs> and Mourinho took over at Chelsea, Mourinho said to him that, uh, Joe told me this, Mourinho said to him, you'll either play the way I want you to play, or you sit in the stands. So Joe said to me, he said, I sat in the stands for a couple of weeks. He said, no, I thought, well, I better play the way he wants me to play. So what Mourinho, he, he, was, he was more of a functional coach, wants players to have a role with and without the ball. He was playing on the left-hand side for Chelsea and his responsibility was to track the right back. And if he didn't track the right back, Mourinho would go absolutely potty. And uh, so whenever he lost the ball, he had to run and get back and show that side of his game and uh, show, you know, add that part to his game. So Mourinho, I suppose, developed into, into a more of a, in inverted commas, a team player. But certainly I thought he had his best spell even when he played for England. And that might have even been in, it might have been in Japan and somewhere around there. When he played as a number ten for England, he had a great World Cup, had a great year for Chelsea, and had a great, um, great uh, year for for England in do you, that, do you think in that free would, role. Do you think if he'd maybe you're, it's a bit of a you know, stretch? Would you think if he would if he would have gone to a, you know Spain or something and played like that, would he have been a bigger? bigger yeah, player? maybe, maybe. Somewhere in a culture where tens yeah, are more, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe. But let's I mean, be fair, he's had a good career. He's you know, won titles at Chelsea, Champions League final, yeah. England Caps, FA Cups, League Cups. You know, he's, you know, he's won all, nearly all there is to win. 
and uh, he's, got, he's, now in, he's now in America playing for Tampa Bay and that's, and that's Joe because he wants to play yeah. he's gone out to Tampa Bay because he wants to play and uh, obviously he's in, enjoying that environment with his family but uh, he's, he's doing his coaching badges and he wants to take up coaching when he comes back yeah. so we might see Joe as a coach in the next three or four years just a couple more things Tony I know I don't want to keep you too long mate just what's your what's your um, attitude to winning on the games on the weekend in the academy you know in terms of the young players well, the younger thing well, how do you deal yeah. with that winning and development yeah. question I think uh, you set out to play every game to win goes without saying because if, if if we're not trying to score more goals than the opposition what's the point of playing that's the, the old point of playing. If we're, not, if we're not trying to score more goals in the opposition, why are we playing? So every game we set out is to win. But what we don't do is set our team out to win at all costs. Because you've still got to have a desire in a young player to want to win a football match. So if he's losing, don't talk about losing. How can we get back in the game? If he's winning, don't, don't gloat about winning. Just try and play the best we can play. So winning is important. Uh, under 18, I think it is very important. Um, um, in, it's not the be all and end all. Don't get me wrong, but I think you've got to, you. I think you've got to try to develop a winning mentality in young players. Winning is part of the game, and so is losing part of the game. And you know, you obviously, try and treat them as equal. You don't like losing, but you enjoy winning. So, um, but no team ever gets set up to play. Well, I've got to win this game, this game, we've got to win today, we've got to win today, we're playing Chelsea, we've got to win today. It, it, it's not that, but you, every game you play, you start a game, let's try and win it. Mm. Let's try and win the game. Let's try and be defensively solid, let's try and be creative up front and score more goals in the opposition. And I think that's the way you should approach every game. And I don't think winning is a dirty word, I really don't. But not win at all costs, don't get, don't, don't get me wrong. Not win at all costs. There's the balance like anything, right? Yeah. But winning is important. I mean, if you've got a team that loses every single Saturday, I don't think that can be much fun. So there's got to be a balance. You've got to win some. So when you do win, enjoy it. But when you do lose, don't get too despondent. So, yeah, winning, winning is important, but it's not the be on end all. Uh, also, quickly, what about your experiences of going into Europe with young academy teams? Did you, as your time went on, did you notice a difference between European players and English players? There's often in the past talked about you know, I, I think the younger players, when you took young players, to, there wasn't a lot of difference. And of course, because they're, they're, our registration year is September till August, and their registration years are January till uh, December, there's always sometimes a bit of a mismatch uh, in, in the age bands. Uh, so there was sometimes always a disadvantage uh, in that respect. Um, and I think there's some um, argument that we should go to year groups uh, just to keep in line with Europe. <coughs> but from a very young age, um, <coughs> I don't think there was a lot of difference between the, the good continental teams and the good British teams. I'm sure you know your time at Chelsea that uh, you'd go to European competitions and probably be better than most European teams you played. Mm. Um, where, where it doesn't get transferred is at the very top senior level. It doesn't seem to transfer that that well, and I'm, I don't know the answer to that. And um, maybe it's the Premier League and the, and I'm the, just ask the, the harshness. Question. Yeah. What about the this 
the, the, this, this apparent wall facing a lot of our young players who are not getting the opportunities in first teams. Yeah. What's your thoughts on this in any way we can maybe well, uh, it's change it? It's, it's because of the money in the Premier League, isn't it? It's because of the TV, TV rights, Sky TV, etc., etc., uh, that clubs now they're going to get a hundred million pound per year in the Premier League from TV rights. So they're going to spend their money on the best players they can. So that lessens the opportunity uh, for the best young English players. So that, if you know, if look at Manchester United, they've just signed Sanchez. Yeah. Uh, today, who's one of the top players in the world? So, any Man United youngster—I'm only using them as an example—but it's the same across the country. That that's got ambitions to get into that Man United team has got to be better than Sanchez, and that's a tough ask for an 18, 19. Well, you look, I suppose you look at Lingard and Rashford have been yeah, playing. Yeah. Suddenly, they're not going to be playing. Yeah, they're they're, they're going to be part of it, but you know they're going to be part of the squad. Um, but their chance is going to be limited. Mm. You know, there's even England players now that. That, that not playing on a regular basis for Premier League teams so that's going to be detrimental to the England team in the long term so it's about the money if Sky TV pulled the plug tomorrow you'd see a big influx of English players playing in the Premier League again um, and that's where you know sometimes players that went in remember Gary Neville doing a thing for the Premier League when he went in to, when he started playing for Man United he didn't believe he was good enough or ready to play but Ferguson threw him in. In these, they took him away on these European trips, uh, European ties, and, and, and all of a sudden he said, "You're playing today." And he went, "I'm playing." He said, "I didn't think I was ready. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I was nowhere near it." But they were thrown in. Nowadays, that you don't get that opportunity. Mm. That that opportunity is gone. That is, that's only 10, 15 years ago. So it has changed dramatically. It's tougher. There's a glass ceiling there that's very, very hard to break. Um, just and then one more question. Just a couple more things. I see. And then we're going to. Just want interesting to know. The Academy of Football West Ham had a very certain way of playing. Down the years, the philosophy of the first team has changed, maybe, like you talked about, you know, with the, the uh, pressures of the Premier League. Did that have an impact on what you did in the Academy? Did the managers ever say, look, we want to change the way we're doing things? No, I was always basically left to my own devices. Uh, I remember saying to Sam Allardyce, because Sam came in to do a job at West Ham, get us promoted, and played. Uh, very functional style and, 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 and was, was very good at it I have to say and I said to him do you want us to play it any different way Sam you know he'd go no 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 he said well I want you to do he said if you ever send me a player he's got to be able to do the things I want him to do you know if it was a defender he, he liked these defenders strap, hit the front players or hit the channel you know and there was no grey areas because it was about squeezing up playing the game in the opposition's half and uh, being tight defensively, and that's the way he wanted to play. And he got us promotion, and did, and he was there three years and was very, very successful in what he did. Um, but he didn't, he didn't sort of say we've got to play in any particular way or not. Uh, and I think you just try and develop your players in a rounded way that they can adapt to whatever the, a manager may may want them to do. And then speaking about players, what would you be your advice to a young player, a young aspiring player, or parent of a player at the beginning of their, their journey? Well, I'd say keep grounded. You know, and take it year on, year on. Don't ever, don't start dreaming about planning the Premier League when you're 12 or 10. Take it year on, year on, and just work as hard as you can at what you're doing. Practice, practice, practice. Be the best you can be. And you know, seek advice, talk to people, but work at it. You don't owe the club nothing. You don't owe them nothing. You've got to prove to the club that you're. You're good enough. So stay humble, stay grounded, 
and keep working at it. And finally, what about a coach, young coach, and his uh, beginning of the journey? You'd like to get to a position like yourself, who's you know, been. Uh... Well, I think you've just got to get hours out on the on the pitch. Too many coaches now, uh, with respect, spend too much time uh, on a computer uh, and don't do enough out on the grass. I think they've got to get out on the grass, learn from your mistakes, talk to people, watch coaches. And, um, you know, a lot of the computer work now is because you've got to do your session plans, you've got to do your, your, your um, reports, etc., etc. So I understand this part and part, which we didn't really have. We had, a, we had a book we had to fill in, but it wasn't as taxing as what they have to do now. Um, but I would, you know, you've got to spend your hours out on the grass and try and work with good people you can learn from and listen to and watch and that's you know that's how you know and ask questions mm. ask questions I when I was young I was I was thirsty for knowledge so I'd ask I'd ask coaches I asked the manager why did you do that what was your thoughts behind that I wouldn't wasn't afraid to ask no no in a polite way well, not in a rude way but uh, but get out in the grass that's where you learn and finally I promise this is the last one E triple P is was a good thing or a bad thing for English football I'm not sure it's brought the rewards they were hoping at this stage the good thing for me was that you you increase the hours of coaching for the younger players I think that's that's a positive uh, I'm not sure it's being used as wisely as it should at this point I think it'll have to be refined at some point um, but I don't think it's bringing the rewards that they thought it might at this point and I've certainly known I know for a fact that some chairman uh, are questioning the wisdom of the extra expenditure they've had to spend on the academy to achieve the category one status and the lack of reward that's coming back their way. Can you give us a quick just example of what, what is the sort of financial you know, uh, cost of an Cat One Academy in terms of what it used to be? Well, you're talking, I suppose, at the low end, they're spending three to four million a year at the low end. Yeah. At the top end, they're probably spending seven, eight million a year. On their academy, and what did you used to spend on academy? You know, you know, about three million. Three million. Uh, uh, when, when I was there, about yeah. three million. Remembering a free EPP. Yeah, we we were out of the twenty league clubs. We were about twelfth, no thirteenth. Okay. In in expenditure, so it ran about there. So yeah. mid, mid to low end. Mm. Tony Carr, thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for the time. Thanks for tuning in to the MyPersonalFootballCoach.com Soccer Player Development Podcast. MyPersonalFootballCoach.com's Dynamic Ball Mastery Program is the world's leading online individual technical training program, proven and developed at the highest level in the English Premier League. Sign up now to train like the pros and take your game to the next level. Master the ball, master the game.